Hi, folks. How are you? It's beginning to look. I'm not going to do that again. Sorry, but we are days away from Christmas. I've just returned from a two and a half hour um, road trip with the kids to visit a couple of relatives um, for a walk before uh, we dive into full blown festive festivities, and that was soundtracked by a Christmas playlist and. It was brilliant. It's properly got me even more in the Christmas spirit, if that is even possible. Um, so I wish you all a safe and a wonderful Christmas. And uh, we have an episode for you today. We've got another one coming up in a week's time. We're not going to have a, we're not having a holiday, uh, but we will be giving you an episode um, every Monday as we like to do, uh, continuing into 2022. Uh, but our guest, our latest guest on Soundtracking is a screenwriter who's proved extremely adept at adaptations of books, including The Men Who Stayed at Goats, The Snowman, The Goldfinch, and the main reason we have Peter Strawn here today, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the film of which is celebrating its 10th anniversary and is doing so with lots of wonderful things. There's a brand new Blu-ray and DVD with loads of great bonus features with interviews and deleted scenes and stuff from the premiere and just loads of stuff. Uh, but also it's available on 4K on Ultra HD for the first time. Uh, and that has been from the first, the 6th of December, I should say. Um, and also it's, it's Studio Canal, obviously, that released Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And if you didn't know already, Studio Canal have just launched their own streaming service, which is on Apple TV. And it is well worth checking out because there are all manner of absolutely brilliant, brilliant titles up there for you to check out. The likes of Free Fire. Hell or High Water, Logan Lucky, Radioactive, um, and many, many more, including Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. So you can watch the film uh, now in all its 4K Ultra HD glory on various digital platforms, including the brand new Studio Canal streaming service available on Apple TV. Peter Strom was a delight to spend a little time with as we explored the ways music informs the writing of a script. And we'll begin with a cue from Alberto Iglesias' score for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Treasure. I'm good, I'm good. How are you? I'm really, really good. I, I think the last time I saw you, you were either coming in or going out of a screening at one point or a Q&A I was doing. I was like, hello, from afar <laughs> sort of thing. I can't remember what it was now. can't remember. Anyway, it's lovely to have you here. And it's really nice because it feels like a, a kind of perfect um, opportunity to celebrate the 10th anniversary as well of Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. It's crazy to think that it's, I mean, I does that does it yeah. feel longer? Does it feel? How, it's how weird. It, it feels both, you know, uh, and that sort of in that sort of COVID way, the, the way that a year can feel much, <laughs> yeah. longer, much shorter than a year normally would. 
in some way, because it was such a big changing point for me in lots of ways. It, it feels a long, long time ago. Yeah. Uh, in other ways, it feels incredible. That's a decade already. Well, it's great to have you on Soundtrack. And what's even great for people who might just be listening to this is that I can see three guitars behind you. Ah, oh, this is a good sign. This is a very good sign. Just for the background of the Zoom, I don't play. <laughs> you do, though, because you used to be in a band. Well, I was a bassist, so it's, it's like being a musician. Oh, all my favourite people are bassists. Russell and my husband's band is one of my favourite people in the world. Being a bass player, you come with a certain personality, I think, which is some of my, it's just, I think it encompasses so many things. He's got this quite unique brilliance about him. Yeah, so it's like a screenwriter as well. He's just quietly in the background, keeping it all together. <laughs> he does all the hard work. Exactly. <laughs> um, where does music fit in for you in terms of you, <clears throat> you know, your work? In because as a writer, you know, and director and producer as well. But but as a writer, and the fact that you you write across different mediums, so to speak, be that writing plays, writing screenplays, um, originals adaptations you know where does music fit into that to that at all that process uh, I've always listened to music while I while I write I think it started because when I used to live in a little bedsit in London with with my late wife Bridget and we were both it was just a one room place and we were both writing in the same room so I used to put headphones on listen to music just to because it was typewriters back then so it was the screen (laughs) you know know. I got it for my Christmas last year that's a very nice looking typewriter as well it was, it was to screen out the noise of the clack clack, really. Um, and, it, and I think I still do, to some extent, put headphones on with music playing almost as a kind of firewall, uh, you know, to cut off the world. Yeah. Which is then funny because obviously the music can then start to affect, you know, what you're working on. So I tend to, I guess I probably tend most of all to listen to classical music when I'm writing. And I tend to listen to classical music I know. So uh, it doesn't pull my attention too much. And then in another way, I always had this odd thing where I'd find a piece, if I was writing a, you know, a particular film or, or whatever, I'd find a particular piece of music that seemed to be the touchstone for the film or project. Yeah. And there would rarely be anything that would ever have ended up on the soundtrack. Sometimes mm-hmm. it was like wildly inappropriate, but for some reason <laughs> connected, you know. Yeah. So, and I would often just play that again and again and again while I was writing. Or if I wasn't, if I got a bit lost, I wasn't sure what to do, I would listen to a piece of music and to somehow reconnect with it and I thought that was a little weird quirk of mine until I, I mentioned that to Thomas Alfredson the director on Tinker Taylor and he had exactly the same thing he had he would have one piece of music um, and he never tells anyone what it is for his project and then I met another writer who also does it so in fact it's really common turns out everybody does it and I'm not special at all. Thomas is brilliant I was lucky enough to to chat to him um, for Snowman actually which which you wrote obviously as well which I, I I really enjoyed that as well. And this morning I kind of um, just, it was so nice. I kind of dropped my kids off at school and then was just really enjoying sort of surrounding myself with the music for, for Tinker Taylor and that whole kind of soundscape that Alberto Iglesias had kind of created for it. Particularly Smiley's song, you know, that kind of theme mm. that he's got with that sort of muty trumpet. That kind, yeah. It's got such a beautiful journey, that piece of music in itself. And and I, I just kind of wondered when you were, you know, when you were adapting well, obviously Bridget working on that as well you know and but but whether there was a whether with things that are as an obvious sound to them for you as well in terms of you can almost imagine what the kind of scores like because with that and and I know that you're working on well you might not be but according to IMDB you are working on Smiley's people you know in terms of so there's so there's an existing sonic landscape there from mm-hmm. from Tinker Taylor and I wondered whether you've 
you know, you've surrounded yourself with that or avoided what's there from being created for Tinker Taylor to help you with that world? It's sort of, it's, it's weird how musically it doesn't work that way. And, you know, yeah. in the way that I was saying before, there's something that would feel like appropriate and be perfect, in fact, for soundtrack isn't necessarily the thing you listen to when you're writing the scene. It's quite mysterious and I don't know why. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I can't actually, to be honest, I can't remember what my touchstone piece of music was for Tinker Taylor when I was writing it. But uh, with Wolf Hall, I remember there was... There was a piece of music from a documentary about the choreographer. I think it's Pina. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It was a sort of it was a sort of Latin American dance piece, which has you know, and it, it, that makes no sense in relation to Wolf Hall, which is you know a sort of Tudor period drama. But that was the piece of music that I listened to all the time when I was writing it. So <clears throat> yeah, they're kind of unique and they're, they're they're separate really from what what makes sense as the sonic world for a film once it's actually made. You know, for other people. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what was fantastic about Alberto's score, um, and, and does, I think, affect me now when I, when I think about the Lucari world, is, and I don't really know enough about music years to sort of express it clearly, but, you know, um, if you think of the opening uh, piece, yeah. I think it's, it's George Smiley, isn't it? Um, it's that there's a sort of dissonance and sort of unresolved tensions tonally at the beginning, um, um, and you sort of know immediately you're not in the Bond black and white morality world you know you're in a yeah. world of lifting tensions and uncertainties and ambiguities and subtleties and not knowing which side you're on and who's on your side and who's right and who's wrong and it sort of felt like it really found a fantastic language for expressing that musically lovely I mean to, to my almost sort of 60s autumnal jazz sound of you know because it's it's a very autumnal film tinker isn't it it's you know lives that are almost over loves that are almost over the war is almost lost but not quite you know important. Mm. not quite there's still a little chance left yeah. and I just think um this, this the smiley theme is, is a lovely melancholy sweet uh, expression of that Is, it's, it's, and I think that that score as well it doesn't it doesn't happen with every score I think that it has a life it can have a life of its own to live outside the film 
Yeah. But I think that that score, it's a, it's almost like a beautiful jazz record, you yeah. know, that you could Absolutely. you can kind of put on and you know and just listen to as a piece of music and i think yeah. that that's but but weirdly when i when you do listen to it it definitely conjures up images of of that beautiful palette that thomas created for that you know for that for that world and yeah. and also gary's performance i think specifically as well yeah yeah absolutely absolutely rainy rainy london in the 70s dismal <laughs> yeah. and beautiful at the same time <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah totally Is that? Can you tell us? Are you, are you are you working on Smiley's People? Is that kind of because it feels like that's been sort of tightened around for what you know quite a while? And you know we all want it as fans because we loved we loved Tinker Taylor, we love Gary, we kind of want to almost see more of that world in a way. Yeah, I, I do too, and I did. I, I worked on a on a, um, a sequel, and then there were problems with the rights, sort of legal problems. So mm. I think I'll probably may not be resolved now. So sadly, I'm not sure there will be a film sequel. But let's talk let's talk of a, a Smiley TV. <gasps> Series, a sequence of the books, really. So we'll, we'll, we'll oh, not okay. definite yet, but we'll see what happens there. But I, I would love to be back in yeah. the Lenny world. It's a, it's a fantastic world. To yeah, be. I have talked at great length with Mr. Lenny Abramson and Stephen Rennick and also Nathan, the editor, about the brilliant Frank. I just think it's it's one of my favourite films because for me, it's almost like one of my favourite indie albums and bands, but on film. It's such a unique beast and brilliant and bonkers. And I love it so much. I've watched it. It's probably one of the films I've watched the most, I think, in my life. Oh, great. For kind of, for joy and for, for, for work as well. Can you talk a little bit about, about, about that? I mean, that's kind of, that's nearly, what's that? 2014, was it? Yeah, no, that's about eight oh, years ago. Yeah. What do you remember about Frank? Frank, Frank was... I'm very, very fond of Frank. I like it too. I really like it. And it's, it's such a weird, oddball thing. It obviously, you know, it came, it was uh, John Ronson who had been in uh, Frank Sidebottom's band originally as a keyboardist. And we talked about that and a couple of other crazy stories from that. And we, I, I adapted The Many Steric Goats, which was John Ronson's book. So we got to know each other and become friends. And we were looking for something else to do together. And we thought, well, what about that? But we immediately thought, not actually the Frank Sidebottom story. I mean, that you could do a good film that's just about the real Frank Sidebottom. But we wanted yeah. to do something that was, I guess, sort of broader in its scope than that, that it was about outsider music, I suppose, you know, in the, in the broader sense. So all those sort of musicians that are right on the edge of doing things and yet still want to be popular musicians rather than experimental avant-garde. Yeah. Those people that maybe don't even know they're experimental avant-garde. They think they're you know, like the shags, you kind of they, they think <laughs> yeah. they're normal until you hear them. So, so, yeah, so that was that, and it was great. And we, you know, we, we knew you started off with a band getting together, and then beyond that, we really didn't know someone joining the band. Beyond that, we really didn't know where it would go, and it just it, it sort of <laughs> rolled along in its own odd course. 
in the writing of it, which was fun. But I mean, I have to say, in terms of the great challenge of that was then, you know, because I, whenever you see some music biopics, I always feel anyway, it doesn't sound like a real band playing in the room. And I just never believe them. You know, I very, very rarely sort of believe in music biopics. So here we were trying to do this fictional musical biopic. So, uh, and it really was very much down to Lenny and the team to then bring that to life. Because obviously in the script, it would just be, I think John came up with some lyrics for some of the songs. But musically, we didn't really know what Frank's band would sound like. We just wanted them to sound not quite like anything else, which is yeah. an almost impossible challenge, you know, to set a director and musical team. But they were great. And the fact that, you know, they the cast sort of did become a little band and rehearsed a lot together and, and that came through. Yeah, so it was, it was very much done blaming the team to make that band um, believable. Just because with with what you what what you wrote, the framework was there for the the atmosphere of the band, you know, in terms of the type of music and the type of band that they were, and what they were writing about, and what they were, yeah, where where they were writing, and the type of music they they were writing. So it's so interesting the journey of that to then the creation of those songs for that band by yeah. the actors and Stephen. Really- oh, by the actors, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I think Lenny, Lenny was on board the project quite early and that really helped so we could kind of be building it together, you know, rather than being just a, a finished script slapped on the desk in front of them. <laughs> so, so that really helped. And, and drawing on influences from all sorts of bands, as you can imagine, you know, I mean, the, the idea of being, of the band working obsessively on some, on a few tracks and being forced to rehearse and re-rehearse and re-rehearse in the middle of nowhere was came from Captain Beefheart and Trout Mask Replica, you know, that sense of being sort of, a tyrant running the band in the middle of nowhere and forcing them to do it again and again and again until they nearly went mad. And of course, popular music is just full of loads of fantastic stories like that. So yeah, it was great to draw on all that stuff. My smile is stuck I cannot go back to your frown land My spirit's made up of the ocean and the sky the sun in the moon in all my can see I cannot go back to your land of gloom where black jagged shadows remind me of the coming of your doom I want my own take my hand and come with me too late for you, it is not too late for me to find my home. Land. 
I mean, I still love that kind of that that end scene. I do too. I think it's one of the most moving, touching performances Michael has given, and he gives it with you know a, a, for most of the movie with a false head on. It's remarkable. <laughs> More Michael Fassbender singing, please, in films. Yeah. He's a good singer, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Definitely going to be in a band at some point in his life. Definitely. Yeah. What for you is the thing that makes you kind of jump on board with a with a with a project, whether it be a play or adapting a book or uh, an original? You know, what's what's the thing? What is it? Something you're looking for? Is it a reaction to something, or is it different every time? The money. Just the money. Yeah. It's different every time. Um, it's sometimes it's it's someone you really want to work with, and yeah. sometimes it's the project itself. You know, so the ones we've just been talking about with Frank, I want you know John and I, John Wanson and I became friends, and we wanted to do something together. So that was sort of the inspiration there. With Tinker Taylor, you know, because I didn't know Thomas, um, we got attached more at the same time as Thomas Robertson got attached. Mm-hmm. But um, but I loved the book Tinker Taylor. I mean, I really loved the book. So I, I don't I don't know really how we got that that gig. It doesn't make sense that we got that gig, but I was really really pleased that we did. So some yeah, sometimes it's a project, sometimes it's a director, sometimes it's an actor you really want to work with. Sometimes it's all you're being offered. And in terms of 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 when there's, I don't know when 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 you've done any adaptations, um, because you know sometimes a lot of talent can be involved in the production side of things, so they'll be attached to projects as they've got rights to books and things like that to yeah. then. You know, is, is there ever been a case where you've had uh, a, a kind of writing project that you've known who's been cast within those roles? And do you try and keep that out your mind in terms of you're not writing specifically for a specific person or are you? It's very strange. It's a little bit, it's a little bit again, like having a piece of music that's a touchstone, but that isn't going to be the soundtrack. When, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll give you an example. I'm busy writing the second series of Wolf Hall now. I know Mark Rylance is going to be a uh, Thomas Cromwell, um, you know, and I know I know who the cast members are going to be. Yeah. And even as I'm writing the scenes and the lines, it's sort of Mark's face, but sort of not. It's some shadowy yeah. figure that I've cast in my head. So it's it's uh, yeah, I never exactly see the actor in my head, but it's yeah. some halfway sort of version of them and, and something else. Mark Rylance, I just saw him in um, Craig Roberts' new films, um, uh-huh. The Phantom of the Open. Oh, uh-huh. so- I mean, he can do everything, can't he's he? He's just like, he's, he's I mean, and I almost kind of feel like he doesn't quite get the recognition that he, he deserves in terms of just how fantastic he is in in anything that he does. Yeah. You know, it's just, he's so, he's so versatile and so, he's so funny in this Craig Roberts film as well. He's just, we've got these teeth in and him and Sally, Sally Hawkins, she's so great. The two of them together are just, it's just a dream. Yes, he's, he's, he's incredible. Actor, yeah. What are you working on? You know, working on the Wolf Hall State at the minute. What's the, how many projects do you have on the go at one time? Uh, at the moment, there's kind of about four, uh, five, four. Uh, but, you know, they're all at sort of different stages. Some things, uh, you know, like a lot of people now, I guess I'm probably doing slightly more TV than film. So you might just be at the pilot stage with one project and you're deeper into the series with another one. So, yeah, it's not, not all at the same place. And when you're working on a sort of TV on a series, are you there throughout the the process of whilst it's filming? Because you know, you, I hear on some things that there's there's you know, it's not just a case of all right, you write the script, you hand it over, and they go off and film it. There's you know, there might be changes, reactions, things that change as it's been filmed. Yeah, I mean, I think this it's kind of the American model has become more common now, hasn't it? Even here, so that that notion of a showrunner, so someone who who will be there all the time, so. 
Yeah, I, I think that probably is right now. I mean, with Wolf Hall, I, I didn't, to be honest. I, I think I just did one set visit. And on, on yeah. film, the tradition was there was not, but, but usually something had gone wrong if the writer needed to be on set a lot. Mm-hmm. Because, that, you know, otherwise there's nothing for you to do, really. You're just another tourist on the set. Yeah. So I, I didn't traditionally used to go very often. Do you like that? Do you like kind of being on I, set? I if you feel like you've got something to do, otherwise you do just feel like, you know, you're just sitting by the monitor. You're on a set tour. <laughs> you're just in the way of it. <laughs> People constantly asking if you want anything. You okay? Would you like? Do you want anything? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, um, Yeah. Maybe. Maybe I'll try and be there more often. We were big fans as well of American Animals. Um, What was your involvement in that? Uh, I mean, very little, really. I, I, um, I'm working on another film with Bart. Are you? Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and I, I, I love Bart. I, I get on really well with him. So it was more just we chatted through that. And I think I wrote some scenes, which I don't think I've even made it into the film. Um, but I love American Animals. I thought Bart did a great job. Such a great film. Yes. And talk about the casting on things as well. That's an interesting thing I find as well. Is, is once you've written a script, be it for a TV or film, and then you see who's cast in those roles, hmm. it must be really interesting for you in terms of, I mean, I, I imagine there's instances where you go, oh, that, that's exactly who I had in mind whilst I was writing it or what are they yeah. there must and I imagine the opposite as well going really I don't know if you're involved in that side of things but you sort of you know, I think more so again in television than in film but nominally you are I mean <laughs> you're always in the room at least when they're talking about it but it's kind of yeah. in the end I guess well you know it's it's a mixture of the producer because there are massive financial implications and the director because there's massive creative implications as to who they are going to be working with you know uh, and I have I've had ones where you think really, and you were right to go really because they just really missed that. <laughs> and I've had other ones where you go really, and you were completely wrong because they were absolutely perfect. And then other times where you think that's exactly who I wanted. So that's a really dull answer, isn't it? All all of the possibilities. I remember with George Smiley, who I did not have a George Smiley and Bridget did neither. We didn't know who that was going to be at all, and I just couldn't right. imagine who it was going to be. And then. When and then the only person we went, the first person we went out to, the only person we went out to was Gary Oldman. Um, and that immediately then felt exciting and made sense. But I would never have thought of that myself, you know. I'm terrible yeah. at you know, casting ideas. It's a real, it's a real art in itself, the, the art of casting. It's that thing though where you can't imagine anybody else in that role, really. You know, when, that, when it's when it's when it's when it's nailed, when it's so yeah, good that you've kind of gone, there is nobody else that could have. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's amazing how the what, what it is that makes it right, because, you know, Gary doesn't look like George. George is, is a little bald and plump, famously. And, you know, and, and Gary, you know, tried to put on a little bit of a punch, but, you know, he doesn't, but somehow with the, with the glasses and that, that mannerism, he became a George Smiley. It was the same with Mark, you know, playing Thomas Cromwell, um, yeah. Wolf Hall. He doesn't look at all as Thomas Cromwell should look. Thomas Cromwell should look like, you know, it's sort of James Gandolfini, a big, big bruiser. You know, and Mark, again, was, was little and lean, but... It didn't matter, you know, there's something they bring on the inside that makes all the outside unimportant. When you're writing scripts as well, how much musicality is involved in that, both in terms of creating an atmosphere through, you know, because there's been instances in in, in productions that you've written where there are needle drops or there, there's a there's a very visual musicality to what we are seeing sort of thing. So I'm, I'm interested in, in that side of things in terms of how specific you are how far you go with that within the script, you know, in terms of, of the direction that you're writing as part of the script? It's, it's a really interesting question, because there's, there's two, I mean, there's two things. One, in a more obvious way, I used to and still do occasionally, but less put music in the script. 
Um, and it's not really that I expect the director is then going to slavishly, you know, put those in the soundtrack, but it kind of gave a clue of this, this is how I was seeing it. This is how I was thinking of feel yeah. as a reference point for them, you know, and they can then, then not feel it that way or not want to see it that way, but at least it's a starting point in that conversation. So there's that like actual insertion of music into the script, but on a much more interesting level, I think, you know, I think that's what you were referring to. A film script is like music, you know, it has, it has, it can have the structure of music and it, it can build to crescendos and you suddenly drop. And, and, you, st- and you, you, know, you need to develop a feel for the rhythm and the music, not only of individual scenes, but how a scene then flows into the next scene um, and how scenes, uh, sequences of scenes become acts. So the whole thing does feel very much like you're structuring music, building to certain points, which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it, re- it really is. It's fascinating. It's kind of, and every, that's, it's just the idea that every, project is this is it's a unique thing there's not a format to follow there's not a framework no. to follow it's no. everyone is its own unique journey and yeah absolutely and you know you kind of wish there was a format and of course there's a lot of books that will try to do it and you know there are there are rules that are useful but then yeah they're not really rules they're just like tools that can yeah. sometimes help you out of a situation maybe good to know them but you must never feel enslaved to them i'll give you a little example actually there's a um in tinker taylor um, the scene, which is my favourite scene in the film, where Gary talks about having met his enemy, Carla. Mm. And it's just, a, a, it's just a monologue to camera, you know. And obviously that's a sequence from the book where Smiley first met Carla, his, the Russian nemesis, and it's in a jail in Delhi. And, you know, the, the rule in film is show, not tell. So mm. that should have been a flashback to that actual scene being acted out. And I think it was Thomas said, let's just do it in the room. Just have him tell the story. It might be really interesting. And we'll just sink in, you know, and close in on him. And just, so it was the thing of breaking the rules, you know, just yeah. do it in the most uncinematic way. And yet it's my favourite scene in the film. It's just Gary talking to camera. I give him the usual pitch. Come to the West and we can give you a comfortable life. After questioning. What did he say? Think of your wife. You have a wife, don't you? I brought you some cigarettes, by the way. Use my lighter. We can arrange for her to join you. We have a lot of stock to trade. If you go back, she'll be ostracized. Think of her. Think about... I kept... hopping on about the damn wife. Telling him more about me than... I should have walked out, of course. But for some reason, it seemed important to save this one, so I go on. We're not so very different, you and I. We've both spent our lives looking for the weaknesses in one another's systems. Don't you think it's time to recognize there is as little worth on your side as there is on mine? Well, I think that it gives it more weight and power in a way because you're seeing how that experience has weighted on him. Yeah. 
and he how he feels about it now as opposed to seeing him uh, back the then when he was going uh, through it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Were there films for you? Um, it was lovely. I was watching an interview with you. You were talking about your kind of journey as a film fan, you know, and watching black and white films and kind of getting into indie with the Coen brothers and then European cinema. Were there specific moments for you in, in being a film fan where you really um, recognised how powerful the music was or how great the music was within within film? I think probably um, when I started watching sort of 70s cinema. Um, so I would have been quite young, I mean, maybe like 12, 13, and it would have been things, you know, like maybe Midnight Cowboy or, or The Graduate. Um, yeah. And that, that fantastic use of um, music by those, those films and those American films of the 70s. It just works so well, or Carol the Moore, the Cat Stevens. It's exactly, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, if you want, I to love that. Well, the car moves through the, the cemetery yeah. and he plays Trouble. It's just it's one of my favorite moments, you know. Trouble, oh, trouble set me free. I have seen your face, and it's too much, too much for me. Trouble, oh trouble, can't you see? You're eating my heart away and there's nothing much left of me. Interesting when when artists are used. I think sometimes sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But sometimes when the marriage is right with yeah. the, the artist that's used to create the whole score. In fact, Ken Brown has just done it really well with Belfast recently. Actually, using Van I haven't Morrison. seen it yet. What's on the score? It's Van Morrison. So oh, it's, Van Morrison. It's, it's existing Van Morrison music, but then he's also written some little bits of right. score. So for it is it exactly well. the same kind of method in this. Um... Because it doesn't get used very often now, does it? I was just trying to think I hadn't seen a film for a long time that did it. Oh, yeah, I want to go and watch Harold and Maud again. I haven't watched oh, that in I'm ages. always happy to watch Harold and Maud. Such a good yeah. film. Lovely, lovely film. Such a good film. Um, listen, it's it's so nice as well to think that, that Tinker Taylor's been celebrated its its birthday as well by by getting put back on the big screen, which is yeah. is is lovely. Um, I think that that's something that, 
I hope that it's something else almost that kind of is, is one of the things to come out of what we've learned through COVID is that, you know, when cinemas reopened and there wasn't that kind of massive um, catalogue of new releases for, for cinemas to show, they looked back at, you know, historical titles and I yeah. saw Fight Club in the cinema and I'd never yeah. seen, you know, so I, I, that I, I kind saw, of thing. You know, I saw Sexy Beast, which I hadn't seen, you know, for what, 20 years or whatever. And it was fantastic seeing the big screen again. I loved it. And then I saw Superman, the original Superman. And I loved seeing that on the big screen. I've really fallen back in love since COVID with going to the cinema. You know, I think I'd sort of got a bit tired of it. And now I, I'm really enjoying it again. Yeah. Um, so I think it's great that um, for people who haven't seen Tinker Taylor on the uh, on the big screen, then I know it's been shown at a, a few screens around the, the country. Seek it out and go and see it because it's... Uh, and then also this great new streaming service that Studio Canal are, 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 are putting up as well, which is great, which just gives people to the opportunity to dive into some, some wonderful, wonderful titles so um yeah it's such a great catalogue and it's kind of really is something there for everybody with you as well and in terms of what level of film fan you are you know whether you go and see two films a year or 200 there's something there for everybody Mm -hmm. and it's so great to chat to you and and i hope to see you in person soon and i hope i get the chance to do you know i love doing the q a so i always love kind of getting the chance to talk about about your work as well so i hope i get to do one with you in the future as well peter thank you yeah so great to chat to you From the score to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, that's Safe House by Alberto Iglesias, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Peter Strawn. Now, next up, Julia Dockernal discusses her sensational new film, Titan. All the songs uh, that are in the film were already written in the script. Yeah. I listened to them as I was uh, writing my scenes and... um, and uh, yeah, all of them I had chosen carefully. And so the, the, the joke in that is that I wrote all, like, all these scenes with these songs. And like, for me, it was only these songs. And then I talk with my musical supervisor. <laughs> and uh, I go, yeah, so I'm going to need that. And that's quite a long list. I think there are at least six or seven songs or something yeah. uh, in the film. It's quite a long list. And some of them were major hits. And uh, and it was like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna need that. And he says, yeah, like forward for like one minute each. I'm like, no, no, full song. <laughs> and he goes, what? <laughs> like, no, I swear, I, I need them. And he thought I was kidding. And I saw him becoming white, you know, with a lot of sweat on his temples and all that. He was like really uneasy and feeling well. And and he was like, but what if I can't and all that? I mean, it's complicated. I'm like. Well, that's the only ones like that's the only mm. ones I want. There is, I'm sorry, <laughs> there is no other way. And he did like a tremendous job, to be honest. I don't even know how he managed. I don't know who he he sold like maybe one of his limbs or something. I don't know how he managed to get all of them entire in the entire time of the song. 
for the film is a wonder to me, but he did he did brilliantly. Julia de Cornaud there. Now, my huge thanks to Peter for taking the time to talk to us. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy is out now, as I said, on various digital platforms, including the Studio Canal streaming service available on Apple TV or at filmsstudiocanal.co.uk. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my chat with Thomas Alfredson, who directed Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you get a moment. So as I mentioned, it's Julia Docorneau, next week's guest. In the meantime, if you can, Titan is out in cinemas on Friday, which is the 24th of December. If you get the chance, try and check out the film before you listen to next week's episode. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 